in a series in the book of Revelation. We're trying not to be weird about it. A lot of series in the book of Revelations can be a little weird, so we're, we're trying not to do that. But in this section, there in chapters 2 and 3, there are seven letters that Jesus says to John. John, take a letter. Actually, take seven. Write this down and send it. This is, these, are the, these are the cover letters to the book of the Revelation as a whole. And there's one unique cover letter to each of the seven churches that this book is going to be sent to. And I showed you on the map last week the mail run. We looked at the uh, uh, first three churches. We talked about the angel of each of the churches. And so if you're wondering why Nate called Bob an angel... Well, there's really good reason for that. But that's what you missed last week. But you'll have to go back and you can find that online. Anyway, as we go on, there's, there's something that is shared in each of these four churches that we're going to consider. And, and in all of them, it really, one of the things that rings true is, 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 is their situation, their circumstance. How are these churches doing? It depends on your perspective. And you've probably heard that phrase before. It, de- it all depends on your perspective, right? You, it's, it's used in a variety of ways. One person, somebody you know probably has used that expression. Well, it depends on your perspective to try to suggest that something that's a little dodgy, a little questionable, is maybe okay to do. It depends on your perspective. Somebody else might, might use it to refer to how well things are going. How's the game going? Well, we're down 13 to 3, but it is the ninth inning, so the pain's almost over. Depends on your perspective, right? It could also suggest people with different purpose or just different experiences see something differently. Like two years ago, did you think you would be glad to see gas at only 460 a gallon? <laughs> Depends on your perspective and what's happened between then and now. Or maybe your priorities. For instance, the EPA might say, well, yeah, gas is $17 a gallon, but look, there's hardly any traffic, and it is no trouble at all to find a parking place. It depends on your perspective. So if things depend on your perspective, how do we know we have the right perspective? How do we know that we're looking at things the right way and not just Bob's spin on it? Because that can easily happen, right? We can take our own spin on things. Well, in each of these letters to these four churches, the last four churches in in Revelation 2 and then chapter 3, we're going to see that as the Lord speaks to his people, he knows how things really are. The Lord gives us the clear view on how things really are. He knows. He speaks to his people from his word. You're going to see over and over again, you're going to hear these Old Testament echoes and references. So when God speaks to his people, it's just not whole brand new things that have never been heard before. He has said this to his people before. And so that confirms the Lord's voice to them. And he also speaks that this is the Lord's voice to them. He speaks to them in personally relevant ways that tie into the circumstance. And that reinforces that when, as he speaks to us, he knows us and he knows our circumstance. He knows our need. Finally, with our Lord, there is always an invitation to mercy. But don't take his mercy for granted. 
So these four churches, we're going to see those four things. He knows, he speaks through his word, he speaks to us as his people individually, and there is an invitation for mercy. We're going to see this in the church of Thyatira. A church that has love and faith and service and patient endurance. A church that's on the move more than ever before. But there's a Jezebel in their midst. And the deeper meaning she is teaching is poisoning the pond. A church named Sardis. They have a good name. They have a good reputation. But they're living in the past and there's little life left at the present. Philadelphia is a church. It's commended. It's a good church. But it's a church that seems weak and small and insignificant. And yet they have a central part in the Lord's purposes. There's the Laodicea church. A church rich in their own resources. They think they see it clearly. But in many ways they are the blind leading the blind into eternal poverty. They didn't need help from Caesar, and they don't think they need help from the Lord. So we want to look at the, the words of the Lord to each of these churches. We'll take it one at a time, so we'll read one letter, then we'll talk about that one, and then go on. So let's begin in, in, in Revelation chapter 2, from verse 18. The first letter to the church of Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2. If you're using the church Bible, you'll find us on page 1029 because I really encourage you to follow along. Uh, whether on your device, you've got your Bible open, or use that one that's in front of you. But follow along as we read because there'll be certain things that I'll be referring back to that we want to stand out. From verse 18 of chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, faith, service, patient endurance, and that your latter works, your latest works, exceed the first. You're doing more than ever, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of their works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart of you in Thyatira who do not hold this... but. I'm sorry, who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, we have not, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who overcomes and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from the Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The church of Thyatira. Thyatira is a city on a plain. They're out in the open. They have no natural uh, protection. So their church has been overrun many times. They're used to going along with whoever now is in power, whoever are their current rulers. That's happened repeatedly over history, quite different than some of the other cities. Here, there's a particular need that the Lord puts his finger on, the Son of God who knows, the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire. 
the one who can see me and see through me, the one who my busyness for him will not receive a pass for my sin. He describes their idolatry, their their immorality. And I think what's happening in Thyatira, in the midst of the the current environment, is very common in the Roman era in the end of the first century, one city over another, that, that there were these people have various jobs, various trades, various career professions that they follow. And they're, they're, according to your profession, you're part of a trade guild. And that guild, you might think of it today, a, a trade organization, maybe electricians or plumbers or, or, or bricklayers or carpenters, whoever, they, they have a patron saint, perhaps. Well, here they had a patron deity, a particular so-called God who they looked to to give them favor and success and prosperity in their work. And now and again, the trade association or trade guild of workers of this particular career path and profession would would gather together to a a feast, a banquet in honor of their so-called God who is blessing and prospering them. And there would be an offering given to this deity and then they all share in the feast together. Everybody eats the meat that was offered to the idol, and in that, we're all at a banquet with this so-called God. We're at a banquet together in the God's honor. And if you don't participate in that kind of thing, you're going to be cut out. You're not going to get the contracts. You're not going to, your bid is not going to be approved. You're not going to be called, called in to work on this job. You're going to be left on the outside looking in. You're not going to be able to make a living. You're not going to be able to pay the bills, support your family. There's a lot of pressure. What do Christians do? They've been part of this association all along, but now they've come to faith in Christ. And what do they do? Well, there's, a, there's um, one perspective that arose in the churches in the day was, you know, it really doesn't matter. We know, you hear echoes of this in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 as well. We know that really those idols, they're not anything. They're just wood and stone. There's nothing to them. It doesn't matter if we go to the banquets. It doesn't matter if we eat the meat. It doesn't matter if we party with them because that's part of our profession because they're just wood and stone. But Paul warns the church, there's, there, there's actually demonic presence behind the idol. There is more to this. There's there's immorality associated with this. And the confidence toward this idol is an unfaithfulness to God. And so the church has been warned, and yet there, there are some teaching deeper things. Now, here the letter refers to... The, there, there, there is among Thyatira, and they are doing good, and they are going places. They are involved in their city. They would say, we are deeply engaged in our city because we are following the deeper things of God. Well, the Lord says they're the deeper things of Satan. Now, I don't think they had a class on Sunday nights called the deeper things of Satan class. I don't know. Maybe we should put that on the BP Academy schedule. The deeper things. No, we're not going to do that. They might have had a class that was deeper things, deeper truths of how to apply Scripture in life, maybe something like that. Let's go deeper. Let's go beyond what the Lord has clearly said, and let's work that out in our cultural context. And that's an issue in any mission situation, to be fair. What do you do with the current context, and how do you relate? But I think there's the, the teachings that have emerged was it's okay to go to the feast, 
In fact, it doesn't really matter. Some of the things you do that would be called immoral, even with your body, it doesn't really matter because the body's temporary. That was a current Greek mindset that is now slipping into the church because the people in the church used to share that worldview before they came to faith in Christ. And so these are things that are being taught now and giving biblical support that we can keep going as we did. We don't have to pay a price for our faith. And yet the Lord calls them into account. He says, he, he says I, I know your works. I know what's going on. I know about Jezebel who is teaching and seducing. Now, I don't think there was a woman named Jezebel. There could have been. Could have been somebody from Tyre and Phoenician heritage that not, not, not a follower of the true God. They gave their daughter this name Jezebel from the princess of Phoenicia who had been the wife of King Ahab of Israel. And she was a well-known personality and very influential in her day. In fact, she, she showed, introduced Israel into all kinds of new idolatry and immorality. So maybe there was a woman named Jezebel, but I don't think so. I think there was just somebody there who was teaching, but the things she was teaching had the same impact upon God's people as Jezebel did in the Old Testament. And so the Jezebel identity and story and image is being used to describe what is happening, how God's people are being seduced to practice immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols in their day, even as Jezebel did in her day. And so the Lord confronts that, and he confronts that with language out of his word, like referring to Jezebel, like where it says in Jeremiah chapter 17, and verse 10, I search the hearts, and I test the minds, and I give to each according to his ways. There will be a recompense. There will be consequences. He uses that Old Testament terminology even concerning the promise, the reward, that those who are faithful and who overcome will share in Messiah's kingdom. They will rule with a rod of iron. That's Psalm 2 language. And Daniel chapter 7 verse 27 talks about how the kingdom, the dominion, the greatness of the kingdoms of the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. That the people of the Lord will share in Jesus' reign. That is our glorious future. And he reminds them of that using Old Testament language to do it. He speaks to them in relevant ways. They've been pressing into deep things. They have been deeply involved in their city, and he's, and he's calling these things the deep things of Satan. And yet there's time to repent. He has given Jezebel time. Her time, it seems, has run out. She has not heard. But those who would follow her, he's giving them warning. And he says to those who overcome, to those who remain faithful, he again uses a earlier in the church word from the Holy Spirit. You remember in Acts chapter 15 where, the, where there's this church council. What do we do as far as should the Gentiles live in very Jewish ways or how do they practice their faith as non-Jewish people out in the midst of the world? And the conclusion the church came to by the guidance of the Holy Spirit was to not put the burdens of the law upon these non-Jewish people except to warn them to stay away from idolatry and immorality. And James writes in that letter to the, all these churches, he says, we put no other burden upon you than to stay away from idolatry and immorality. And how does the Lord speak here? 
He says, to those of you who overcome, I put no other burden upon you. He's reminding them of what he's already said. His, God's word to this church or those within this environment where they're being encouraged to compromise, he says, hold the line. Stay faithful. You've heard my word. Stay to it. Stay true to it and keep going. We need to rush to cover the four and then make some conclusions. So let's move on to the church of Sardis. In chapter 3, verse 1, a shorter letter, just seven verses, to the angel of the church of Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Your works are incomplete. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He was an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here in Sardis, now, first of all, he says, you have a name. You have a name that you are alive and you are vibrant, but he says, really, you are dead. You're running on your reputation. And that was then, and this is now, and there's little life left. He says, you are dead, and then he tells them, wake up. Why does he tell them to wake up if this church is dead? Well, those of you that know the movie Princess Bride, you know the answer to that question, right? They're not dead. They're mostly dead. Let's take a look. Where's that fellow's cramp? He probably owes you money, huh? Well, I'll ask him. He's dead. He can't talk. Look who knows so much, huh? Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. Now, mostly dead, he's slightly alive. Now, all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing that you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. so important. What you got here, that's worth living for. True love. True love. You heard him? You could not ask for a more noble cause than that. Yes, honey. True love is the greatest thing in the world. Except for a nice MLT. Mutton, lettuce, and tomato sandwich when the mutton is nice and lean and the tomatoes are ripe. They're so perky. I love that. Where's that Certainly, there's no, there's no greater motivation than true love. And there's where we serve our Lord. Remember the letter of the church at Ephesus? I could have used that there. You, you have lost your first love. And uh, yet it's by the, um, by the, there, the character portrayed by Billy Crystal, he, he's easily distracted by a MLT sandwich. 
And so, so the church can be easily distracted at times. But this church, though they are dead in the Lord's estimation, yet there's still time, yet there's still opportunity. By the breath of his Holy Spirit, not by a bellows, they can be enlivened. They can wake up. Now is the time, Paul said to the Ephesian church, to awaken out of sleep. For now we are nearer to our salvation than when we first believed. This is language God has used before. In fact, he uses it in Isaiah as well. In Isaiah 51, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the former days. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments. You see that same kind of language that God has used among his people before. He's not just talking to Israel. He says, this is for you as well. There's something for us to hear. And he uses the words that he has already used when addressing his people before so that they will know it's him. They will know it's his voice. God will speak to you out of his word, even as he speaks to this church. He talks to them about their, 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 their unfinished work. You know, something else about this church of Sardis, how he speaks to us through his word, but he does it in relevant language. He speaks about them in their garments. There's a textile industry in, 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 in Thyatira. They're known for their wool. The, the, um, there's also something about your works are unfinished. Um, I'm sorry, I said Thyatira, I meant Sardis. Sardis was Sardis had applied, like many of the cities, prominent cities, they would apply to be the custodian of an imperial temple. We want to host a temple to Caesar. It's great standing in the Roman Empire to be the host city of an imperial temple. And so they applied, and, and cities compete, kind of like trying to get the Olympics. And as they applied for this honor, Rome turned Sardis down and chose somebody else. You know why? Well, Sardis already had a temple. They had a temple to, to, to Artemis. And it was quite a large and fantastic temple, but that's not the reason they were turned down. Every city had all kinds of temples, but they'd never bothered to finish. They'd never bothered to complete the temple of Artemis. Now, that would sometimes happen for various reasons. There's a, there's a temple in Athens that took over 500 years from one empire to the next to actually be completed. It was finally completed, then it fell down, but that's another story. But their temple was incomplete, and apparently Rome was not, was not interested in having an incomplete temple. You know, the Lord is building his temple. He talks about the church together being built up together as a holy temple to the Lord, and he says to Sardis, there in your neighborhood, your work is not yet complete. I'm finding the temple unfinished. I need to wake up and, and return from your distractions. Put down the MLT and return to the work that I've given you to do. And, and in the midst of those who have not soiled their garments, there is he's referring to Zechariah chapter 3. The high priest Joshua is standing before the Lord. He's in all this filthy clothing. And the Lord says to him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away. That's the Lord's promise. That you may think you have disqualified yourself. You may say, I have soiled my garments, and yet he will remove them from you. He will give you new garments in shining white. Isaiah 1.18 says, Though your sins are red like crimson, they will be like wool. That's the language that he's talking to them in. Language that they would identify with. 
And there's, a, there's, a, there's an invitation here that um, the one who overcomes will be clothed in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. There's this promise of this book, the book of life, uh, that we find echoed in the, in, the, in the prophecy of Daniel, chapter 12. At that time, your people will be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. You see the language and the echoes from the Old Testament into the Lord's words to this church. God will speak to you, and God will speak to you in your circumstances, in your situation, and God will speak to you through his word. The Church of Philadelphia is a church of, uh, the Church of Philadelphia, oh, there's one other no, I'm just going to go, go on by. We need to get to Philadelphia. The, the church of Philadelphia is a church of little strength. Let's, let's read from verses 7 through 13. The angel of the church of Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have little power, yet you have kept my word, have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the church of Philadelphia in verse 8 is a church that has little power. They have little strength. But you have kept my word. You have not denied my name. You have kept his word about patient endurance. This is apparently not a large church. This is not a mega church. This is not a church that has a lot of resources as compared to the, to the next church that we're going to look at. This is a church that doesn't seem like, it's what could we do? What difference can we make? Do you ever feel like that? But what difference can I make in the midst of what needs to be done when you look and see what's happening all around you? And there's this reference to the synagogue of Satan. And, and, and the Lord is telling them, don't worry about it. I will deal with that. Now, I don't think, just like I don't think there's a, a church teaching the deep things of Satan, I don't think there's a Jewish, Jewish assemble, assembly in the city of Philadelphia that has over their front door the synagogue of Satan. That would be kind of a non-starter, wouldn't it? Those just don't go together. So why is it called that? It's because this... Jewish assembly, the people, perhaps the leaders of the synagogue, thinking that they're serving God and guarding the truth of their historic faith from these, these others who used to be among them, some of them, but who have now decided that this man, Jesus, is the Christ, the Messiah, and even the Son of God, and, and we just can't allow that. And they have opposed them. They have shut the door to them as far as the synagogue is concerned. 
And very common in Jewish circles in the first century when you came to faith in Christ, not only was the synagogue closed to them ultimately, but also other Jewish fellowship and um, trading, uh, buying from your shop, uh, going to Jewish shops. You're, you're excluded from the community. You're made to be an outsider. The door is closed to you. And the Lord uses that language when he speaks to them. One of the other things that would happen in this time, late in the first century, after the Jewish revolt in the land of Israel, when they rebelled against Rome, there was pressure on Jewish communities to show their loyalty to Rome. And one of the ways you can show your loyalty is to, is to point somebody else out as disloyal. One of the ways that you can lift yourself up in some way in the eyes of others is you can point out somebody else's faults. Right, And so what, what the, uh, the, the Jewish leadership seems to be doing here in Philadelphia is you want to know who's, who's really, don't, no, we're, we're, we're loyal citizens of Rome. No, we don't, we don't do the whole worship the emperor thing because we're Jewish, but those people over there, those who say they follow this Jesus who they say is the Christ, well, they're not really Jewish. They're not with us, and yet they don't give honor to the emperor. Can you imagine Jewish people pointing their finger out, naming off to the Roman authorities other Jewish people for not worshiping the emperor. Yet that's what's going on. In the name of preserving the synagogue, we will literally throw others under the imperial bus. That was what was happening. And Jesus calls them out for it. He says they're not serving, the, they're not serving God. That has become a synagogue of Satan. And he uses terms, and he says, I, I will set before you, you who are weak, you who are little, you who have been shut out and had doors closed to you, I will set before you an open door that no one can shut. And that's language that resonates in their circumstance. That, that speaks to their situation and the isolation that they feel, but it's also biblical language. It's Old Testament language. It's messianic language because um, Jesus is, is foretold in Isaiah 22 in verse 22 when the word says, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. He says not only that, but you who are excluded, you who are outsiders, you who feel marginalized because you faithfully follow me, he says, you're going to be the center of my future. I will make you pillars in the temple of the Lord in his new city. And I will put God's name upon you. I will put my name upon you. Uh, you will belong in the city. And I'm reminded of two pillars in the Old Testament temple. The, te the, the temple that Solomon builds, there are two temples on the, two pillars on the front of it. The, and, and he gives them names. I mean, you don't normally name give proper names, human names, to, to pillars in a building. But these two pillars are given names, just like names are going to be inscribed on them. And the names are Boaz and Jabez. And the meaning of those names is very significant here. The, the, the meaning of the names are God establishes, and in him is strength. That's what the church needed to know. I've got you. I will keep you close. I will establish you. Though you have little strength, I will be your strength. 
God will speak to you. God knows your circumstance. God knows your situation. He will speak to you in relevant ways to that situation, and he will speak to you out of his word. There is a future vindication that they will bow, others will bow their feet in vindication that they have been serving the true and the living God. There's mercy for them. They will be made the center. In a, in a, and in a city that after A.D. 17 was abandoned for many years, the people couldn't live in the city because there had been, again, this area has trouble with earthquakes, and they, they had been a, a severe earthquake around Philadelphia, and it not only knocked some things down and pillars fall over, but other things are not safe and not stable. And so they can't live in the city. For many years, they live out on the countryside around the city because the city is unsafe and unstable. And yet, God will give them a place within his city and they'll never go out from. It's not that they're captive in in the New Jerusalem. It's that they are secure there. They will never have to flee it. They will never be forced out of it. But they will be safe in God's future. We can trust his grace both in our service today and in God's future vindication and reward for our faithfulness. Lastly, we come to Laodicea, the self-reliant church. The church that says, you know, we've got this. Because they, as a city, as a people, they've said that before. Look at verse 14 of chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing, not realizing you are wretched and pitiful, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I know your works. First of all, he knows. You are neither hot nor cold, and he's speaking to them already in language that they understand because Laodicea is a city in between. Over on one side, nearby, is, is a city up on a hillside, Hierapolis. And Hierapolis has these beautiful hot springs, and they kind of cascade a little bit down the hillside. And I, I've, I've never seen them in person, but some of the pictures can make them look quite fantastic. And the water comes out of them piping hot. And they would have hot springs resorts, and you would come and soak in the hot springs. They had a going thing. You had to climb up the hill to get there, sure, but the hot springs were worth it. Well, Laodicea didn't need to go to the bother of climbing up the hill because they had the money to build aqueducts that would bring that piping hot water down to the town of Laodicea. Now, that's hot water. But over on the other side, toward Colossae, there are these wonderful, cool, refreshing mountain streams. 
And out of those mountain streams and springs, they would take that nice, cool, refreshing water. Hierapolis has got the hot water. Colossae's got the cold water. We over here, we don't have any of that. But we've got the money, so we'll buy both. We'll build an aqueduct over here that's going to bring that nice, cool, refreshing water from the mountains, and it's going to bring it right down into town. So we in our town have got hot piping water and cool, refreshing water. Except... On the hot days, the cool water became lukewarm. And even worse, on the cold days, the hot piping water became lukewarm. But it comes from these sulfur springs, remember, so not only does it, is it is really hot originally, but it has that nice sulfur kind of rotten egg smell. And then when it gets down into town, and it's only lukewarm, but... It still has that nice, sulfury, rotten egg smell. And you just say, that's nasty. And that's what the Lord is saying about this church. Not because of their water, but because of their self-reliance. You know, the city of Laodicea, in A.D. 60, there was a regional earthquake, and Nero, being the kind and gracious and, and generous emperor that he was, he says, you know, Rome's got some resources. We've got a FEMA agency. We're going to send some white trailers, and we're going to start writing checks, and we're going to help you rebuild. And all the cities were grateful for the imperial assistance, except Laodicea said, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. We don't want to, you know, insult the emperor or anything, but we've got this. We ourselves have all the resources we need to rebuild our city. They were used to relying on themselves as a, as a people, as a city, as a community. They were used to saying, it's okay, we've got this. And among a prosperous people, with skills and ability and resources in our hands, it's a dangerous thing for us to have an inclination that we've got this. You know, Lord, there's some other people that probably need your help, but we've, we can do this if we only knew. We don't know our weakness. We don't know our inabilities the way that he's. You know, they, were, they had this eye, this eye powder that you'd mix with water and you'd have an ointment, an eye salve, and it was great for healing eyesight. They said, you know, we can, we can make people see again. They did not realize that not only were their riches poverty, but they were blind to their spiritual condition. Jesus said, you want eye salve, you want your eyesight back, you're going to need to get that from me. You want true riches, you're going to need to get that from me. They had this beautiful dark black wool. If you wanted regular wool clothes, you'd get that a lot of places. There's sheep all over the countryside. If you wanted this beautiful dark wool, then you'd mix in. You'd, put, you'd do some pinstriping in there. If you wanted a really nice dark wool suit, you know, for weddings and funerals, that kind of thing, you'd go for Thyatira. They were known around, or not Thyatira, Laodicea. They were known around the Roman Empire for it. Jesus says, you think you got some nice suits there, but y'all are naked. You got nothing to wear at all. You need covering from me. Your shame and your nakedness on full display. But his invitation is, I will cover it. I will forgive. Behold, imagine a church that has so got this, never mind, we don't need any help, that they've left Jesus on the outside. And yet, he stands at the door and knocks. Think of it. 
Because you and I at times in our self-reliance can do the same thing. That's why as we go forward in this, we're amazed at how God has already provided, but we take none of that for granted. We do not take our own plans and what seems best to us for granted. We hold these things in open hands and we bring them before the Lord. and We say, Lord, would you direct us? Lord, would you lead, would you guide, would you provide, would you grant favor and approval according to your plans and purposes and what you intend in this community and in this corner over the next generations? Because we don't know, but you know the end from the beginning. So we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And so in every one of these churches, the Lord knows his churches and the Lord knows this church. The Lord knows our needs and the Lord knows you. And he knows the circumstances and the situations you're in. He knows the successes and the dangers. He knows the reputation versus the reality. He knows what we can do and yet what he will do through us. He knows what we need to hear whether we like it or not. What does he know about your needs? What does he say in his word to you? Because he will speak to you from his word. It will include revealing himself, affirming. It will, it will include correction and exhortation, a challenge. It will include promises you can count on. God will speak to you from his word. You know, I was, I was thinking about our, our needs. And I was reminded of this beautifully in our small group this last week. There was a, there was a, a time when we were sharing prayer requests. And, and one person turns to another. He says, do you have a prayer request or are you good? We all said something like that before. But it just struck me different, I guess, because of where I'd been reading. It reminded me that none of us are good. Even if we don't know what we should be asking for, none of us are good. Do you have someone in your life who, who knows you and prays for you the things that you haven't asked them to pray, but you should? If you realized it. Perhaps some of you have adult children. Nothing brings you to prayer like adult children, right? You have adult children that you're praying for in ways that they have not asked you to pray for them. Do you have that? Do you have somebody who prays like that for you? Somebody that knows you, you rub shoulders with, you're close to, you're life on life with, so that they know how to pray for you, even if they haven't asked you, or even if you didn't ask them to. Someone will pray for you and the things that you'd rather they didn't because you really don't want to open that can right now. You, well, you, you just soon the Lord just left that alone, but because he loves you, he won't. That's why we need to be in connection with others. The Lord will speak to us in ways that relate to our circumstances. He does that. He did that in his incarnation. God came into humanity he took on human flesh that he would reveal himself to us. You see that in Jesus' parables. You see that in these historic details. You've experienced it in your own life. I remember a time when it was time for us to leave the Air Force and to, to continue following the Lord's leading into overseas missions, even though we didn't know yet who we were joining with and what we were going. And it came time to sign a paper that means I would be leaving the Air Force. I could not stay in after nine years. And... and we were seeking the Lord's will, and we had a certain period of time, and yet hearing again God's word, I didn't need to wait the 10 days. I could just go in, and I could sign the paper. And yet a couple of days later, the Lord confirmed it in a very personal way. 
He revealed to, to me in that paper that I never should have gotten until after that 10-day window was, was closed, but he would have used that to chase me out of the Air Force if I hadn't gone following his leading in faith. It was, a, it was a one-year assignment where I would have had to be away from my family for a year. And that's not, there are many in the military make that sacrifice. But that was the particular thing that Julie and I had been praying for once I had re-enlisted and made myself way over vulnerable to that exact kind of assignment. And we had been praying that God would keep us from that kind of assignment, that we wouldn't leave, I wouldn't be leaving Julie and our small children at that time. And he used that as a confirmation that we were making the right decision, even though some would have questioned our wisdom at the time. God will speak to you through his word in very personal ways in your own lives. Finally, our Lord is merciful in the midst of our failings and mercies. In whatever sin or failure in inability, where do you need God's mercy? Because we're going to close with a song that says, Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. And he stands at the door and he knocks and he offers fellowship, relationship with him for any who will receive his invitation. As Lamentations 3 says, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning that our God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our part is to receive that mercy, to receive that forgiveness, to say, God, I believe you concerning Jesus, that he gave his life in my place for me to restore me to relationship with you, or that his death covers this guilt of mine also. His death covers this failure of mine also, and I can trust you for that. God invites us to return, to walking in his way, in his forgiveness, taking a next step in faith like Philadelphia and finding our fulfillment, not in our own resources, but in him and his provision. Let's pray. Father, would you teach us indeed to follow your will and be strengthened against compromise. Father, would you, would you cause us to rely on you, to trust you enough to finish that work that you've given us to do? Father, would you, would you strengthen us when we have no strength? Would you open doors for us? Would you, even in this next week, Lord, give us fruitful ministry among the children of this church and, uh, and children in the community who come and join us? Father, would you use that opportunity? Would you make it an open door into the lives of children and families? And Father, would you, would you stir in us? Lord, would you open our ears? Would you open our eyes? Would you cause us to hear and see your gracious invitation into your continuing forgiveness and mercy? And Father, most of all, we thank you for that, that though our sins are many, your mercy is far more. And that Jesus Christ, your Son, has died in our place for our forgiveness. And that is our claim to rightness with you today and forever. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.
Amen.